up sundown early. I set it at 7 during the rest of the time because people are at work and they have to get home and get ready before they come. So I think 7 uh, tomorrow night, uh, Sunday night, and each night during uh, the week. But for the night only, let's go ahead and, and meet at 6. Uh, I've heard that some cookies have been prepared, and I know Marla's sending over some of her homemade ice cream. So uh, uh, maybe that'll be an inducement to get us here uh, through the snow in spite of ourselves. <laughs> but uh, So 6 o'clock this evening for a meeting. It won't be a real long meeting. We'll sing a few hymns. We'll say a prayer. We'll have some snacks, and we'll give thanks to God for the blessings he's given. Now, yesterday was the ninth month, 24th day, and I've been anticipating that perhaps from that day forward, as Haggai says, that day and upward, or after that, God would begin to bless, now, whether that's this year or not. I've been watching this day now. This is the 21st year since I learned of it, I believe. Uh, so maybe this is the year that it begins to bless, and there are some things that might suggest that, so we will see what God has in mind. Now, in that light, I came across something this morning that I found, to me, to be absolutely astounding and almost mind-boggling, uh, and maybe it is, in a way, a small blessing on this day. Uh, you remember here recently, two or three weeks ago, I went through and showed how Christ had declared uh, the, the year 27 A.D. as the acceptable day of the Lord, and tied with Ezekiel and so on. It appears that he was announcing the Jubilee, there in, at Atonement of 27, because that's when the Jubilee was to be announced, which for another 50 years. Now, he began preparations for his ministry and began his ministry in 26, 27 A.D. And then he began to give Hebrew Armstrong a message to take to the world, the truth of God, the power of salvation, the Sabbath, and so on, in 1926 and 27, which would have been 1900 years later and would have also been a jubilee year. Now, the next Jubilee coming, if that be the pattern, will be Atonement of 2027. And I think that that is probably the day of Atonement that Christ will announce at uh, the beginning of the millennium of his seventh thousand year reign. A year of Jubilee and liberty, where all the land will go back to the original owners uh, of Israel and God will begin his reign on this earth, probably on that jubilee year. Now, that in itself is interesting, and then I showed how, through Hilda Armstrong's ministry, uh, and the work that grew from what God established in 1926 and 27, several parallels between when this little congregation began uh, to that of Herbert Armstrong. Because in Zechariah 1, it talks about how long the Lord will do not extend mercy through the 70 years. Well, the 70 years of captivity in Babylon were about up, and God said, I will yet choose Jerusalem. I will yet choose Zion uh, in that chapter, and that he would yet comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. So the church had been in modern era, from 1926-27, when the message began to be given to Herbert Armstrong, uh, it had existed for 70 years uh, in Babylon when God began to reveal a message in 1996 and 97 that had to be uh, preached. And that is that the temple would be rebuilt, but a gathering would come, and that God would begin to do another work to Joshua and Zerubbabel and the gathering of the people. So uh, another 
temple would be found in a spiritual temple as well as a physical temple established. We saw several different uh, movements forward in Herbert Armstrong's work, and in our own history, exactly 70 years later, something would move forward. So the beginning of the message came in 96 and 7, just like it came to him in uh, 26 and 27. Now, during this last week, I began to think of the movements forward we've had in understanding, and I came up with the thought, well, what about 20, uh, 2006 and 2007? Because it was at the end of 2006, beginning of 2007, that we learned where the true Jerusalem, the original Jerusalem was. And I thought, that was a very, very important understanding for us to come to have. And shouldn't there be something commensurate to that in Herbert Armstrong's work? Now, I didn't have the autobiography with me, so I didn't have any way to check it out, but it kept coming back to my mind. So this morning, I grabbed the autobiography of Herbert Armstrong, and began to thumb through and find out what might have happened during that time frame 70 years before we learned where the true Jerusalem was. What I found just made my eyes bug out. <laughs> he was discussed in 1936. Now let me explain something. We came to understand and went up to visit the site of the original Jerusalem was, it was presented to, to us in uh, the last week of December 1936, 19, excuse me, 2006. And we went up to see it during the first week of 2007 and began working on a dig there, an archaeological dig, to see what we might find. Now, over the years, it was, un it was confusing in my mind whether we started that dig in January of 06 or of 07. But that's an important thing before I read this to you. To, to, to see, I was kind of confused about which year it actually started, okay? So then I looked back in my tax uh, returns and found some receipts that showed that we actually began the work in January of 2000. And, set, and seven, and we had gone to see the site in, or uh, had learned about it in the last week of December uh, 2006. So I cleared up that confusion I had in my mind. But you'll see that there's an application here for that. Uh, we'll discuss 1936. He says, now we come to the year 1937. Now, I've gone through the autobiography, and I hadn't particularly noticed this that he's about to explain. Uh, he says that about mid-November of 1936, they'd been on a small radio station in Oregon, and during that time, uh, they went on a network of three stations in November, mid November of 1936. Then he has a little subtitle here, which I found very, very interesting. I'm going to read parts of a little bit of this to you. It's entitled, Gospel to the Holy Land. Okay? You get the clue? He says, Meanwhile, I was continuing to hold regular Sunday night evangelistic services in our little church uh, in Eugene, and it was increasing. Now he says, listen, it was either the last Sunday in December 1936 or the first Sunday night in January of 1937. So he had confusion in his mind whether it was the last week or the first week. Just like I did about this Jerusalem. I found that interesting. Anyway, he says it was one of those two weeks that a former leader of that church of God would be found described in Revelation 31 as the Sardis Church. I think his work was Sardis now, and that was uh, uh, by a part of the one before. 
the which I was trying in those days to cooperate appeared with a professed converted Jewish evangelist. This particular church leader, whom I will not name, since I can say nothing good about him as an individual, had a scheme to get the gospel to the Jews in the Holy Land. They had arrived the day or two before and explained the plan to me. It sounded real good. In fact, the idea itself was good. The reason evangelists generally were failing to convert the Jewish people to Christ, to explain, was the wrong approach. They went to the New Testament and so on. He goes on to explain that this man said he was going to go into the Old Testament and show the predictions of the birth of Christ and so on and try to get the Jews to understand that Christ's words were in the Old Testament, as we understand, of course, today. So the plan was to raise enough money to send this man to Jerusalem so he could begin to convert the Jews. Okay? Uh, on that Sunday morning, I interviewed both this church leader and the Jewish evangelist on my radio program and announced public meetings where the converted Jew would speak at our little church on Sunday night. And that night, the church building was filled, and he asked for an offering to send this evangelist to Jerusalem. But a year later, after everyone unpleasant experiences with this church leader during 1937, the Jewish evangelist again visited our home in Eugene, and he had this sad report, honest and sincere, but sad. Uh, he had gone to Jerusalem, and he had found that the church and church members supposed to exist there were non-existent, he said. The man whose name was used as a representative of the church also proved, he reported, to be a representative for other churches drawing financial compensation from all of them, and the converts being made the Arabs, not Jews. And what they would do is they had a bunch of these preachers lined up, and they would promise that they would get tea and cookies to all who attended if they would just say they accepted Jesus. So if you wanted tea and cookies, you accepted Jesus. And then you got your tea and cookies, and then you went on down the road to the next one, and by the end of the evening, you had lots of tea and lots of cookies. Now, this has been my experience in working with the people in Kenya. They raise up these orphanages, and they hire people and their kids to come attend the orphanage, and they receive compensation from all the different church groups over here that they can. It's a scam. Well, that's what this turned out to be. Uh, I've learned many lessons in my over 40 years in Christ's ministry, and I've been completely disillusioned in regard to the sincerity of a lot of professed religion in this world. Now, let's put this together. He thought it was a good idea to go to Jerusalem as the idea was brought to him. But it failed. Now, exactly 70 years later, we learned where the true Jerusalem is. And it will succeed. He went to the fake Jerusalem not knowing what he was doing. And it didn't work. Now, we are poised to build a temple in the true Jerusalem with God's blessing, and it will work. So, he meant well, and I guess that Jewish evangelist meant well, but they were going to the wrong place at the wrong time and didn't have the right message yet. So we can add 1936, 1937 to our 2006-2007, exactly 70 years later, and this time it was precisely the same thing, going to Jerusalem, the fake one, and 70 years later, the true one. Now I find that astounding. This is another little piece of the puzzle in the history of what God has been doing with this little congregation. Now, to me, that was, a, that was a massive encouragement this morning when I put that together and saw, because I had no idea what might have happened in 1936 and 37. It, nothing came to my mind from, you know, knowing the history of the church. 
But it's called out in some confusion on whether it was the last week or the first week. And I have the same confusion in my mind. It was identical. So I think that is an encouraging note to begin this first Sabbath after 944. Or maybe it means that God will begin to bless. Now, we're also going to see something very interesting in the sermon uh, if we go through here in a little bit. Let's go, first of all, today to Second Chronicles 6. Uh, I'm going to speak mostly about the dedication of, of temples of God today, since it is the first day of the Feast of Dedication, and uh, it seems to be an appropriate thing for us to discuss. So, Second uh, Chronicles 6. Now, we know that David had gathered up the materials to build a temple for God, and because he was a bloody man, God had not allowed him to build the temple, but he chose to allow Solomon to assemble those uh, parts that David had done and to have him build the temple. Now, now, what does it take, brethren? What does it take for us to get in a bad attitude? What does it take to get us to turn our head on the focus that God has given us. I think David is a truly enormous example here of his dedication and his love for God in that he accepted God's judgment that he did not build the temple. Now, it had been a major thought in David's mind that he would be the one to build that temple. He had a relationship with God. God had made him king. Uh, he had gathered, or was going to gather the materials. And when God told him, you're not going to build a temple, I'm sure that was a very, very deep emotional blow to David. Very deep emotional blow. And yet he didn't waver. He said, all right, I'll, I'll assemble the materials. I'll continue to serve God. I'll not let this deter me. And he went ahead. And then he uh, gave Simon and his blessing to build the temple of God, and he did not get to do it. So that was a major disappointment in David's life. But he was very, very willing to accept God's judgment. Chronicle 6 here with the beginning of the dedication of the temple that Solomon had built to God. Uh, so in verse 3 of chapter 6 of Second Chronicles, the king turned his face and blessed the whole congregation of Israel, and all the congregation of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the eternal God of Israel, who has with his hands fulfilled that which he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying, now Here's what God had said to David. <clears throat> Since the day that I brought forth my people out of the land of Mitzrayim, I chose no city among all the tribes of Israel to build a house in, that my name might be there. Neither chose I any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name might be there, and have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the eternal God of Israel. But the Eternal said to David, my father, Forasmuch as it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well in that, you did, did well in that it was in your heart. Notwithstanding, you shall not build a house, but your son which shall come forth out of your loins, he shall build a house for my name. The Eternal therefore has performed his word that he has spoken, for I am risen up in the room of David my father, and have sat on the throne of Israel as the Eternal promised, and have built the house for the name of the Eternal God of Israel. And in it have I put the ark, wherein is the covenant of the Eternal that he made with the children of Israel. So the ark of the covenant had been placed in the temple. And then he told about uh, how he had made a brazen scaffold of five cubits long and five broad and so on, 
and kneeled upon his knees before all the congregation of Israel, and spread forth his hands toward heaven. Now here is Solomon's prayer at the Feast of Dedication. Now we've started keeping the Feast of Dedication for the first time. I did go through and show that it was not uh, the Jews' Christmas, but it was uh, indicative of the dedication of the temple after Antiochus had perverted it and polluted it, and then Judas Maccabeus had restored it and cleansed it, and they had a dedication. Now, as part of the Jewish story of history, uh, they didn't have enough oil to keep the candles going in the temple. So they had to find some purified, blessed oil to do that. In the meantime, they only had enough oil for one day. And the history, as the Jews have reported it, was that that one day's worth of oil lasted for eight until they were able to get real uh, holy oil to keep the candelabra burning in the temple. So from that time, they kept eight days of the Feast of Dedication commemorating that miracle from God that came and was also a part of the blessing of the dedication. So here is his prayer at the dedication of the temple. There's a lot here for us to consider. Now, we read uh, two weeks ago, I guess, the prayer of Daniel and how he had fasted and prayed at the end of the seven years, 70 years of the captivity, that God would again bless his people. And as a result of reading that, I suggested that we have a fast the next Sabbath, which we did, uh, as Daniel had, to ask for God's blessing and forgiveness for us. So here's another prayer that has to do with the dedication of the temple that Solomon prayed, and let us consider it. <clears throat> so he read his, spread his hands toward heaven and said, O eternal God of Israel, there is no God like you in the heaven nor in the earth which keep covenant and show mercy to your servants that walk before you with all their hearts. Notice all their hearts. Uh, he told us in the book of Jeremiah that we would find him when we sought him with all our heart. And that's mentioned more than once in the prophecies. Now notice that Solomon mentions first how God keeps his covenant and how he is a God of mercy. If you'll recall, those were a couple of the main elements of Daniel's prayer to God about him turning his face back to the Jews and letting them go build the temple, which God responded to there in Daniel. You, have, you which have kept with your servant David my father that which you have promised him, and speak with your mouth, or spoke with your mouth, and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. So he's reminding God of his promise to David and how God had been true. Now therefore, O eternal God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you had promised him, saying, There shall not fail you a man in my sight to sit upon the throne of Israel, yet so that your children take heed to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now then, O eternal God of Israel, let your word be verified. He's asking God to act on it, to verify it to underline it, which you have spoken to your servant David. So he reminded God of his promises to David. He says, I want you to verify those promises and to keep them. We can remind God of his promises and ask him to keep them. But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Could the God of the universe come and dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. You're, you're bigger than the universe, Father. Uh, how could this little house I built contain you? Have respect, therefore, to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O eternal my God, to hearken to the cry and the prayer which your servant prays before you. So, please answer my prayer, he says. 
And we can ask that same uh, thing of God. That your eyes may be open upon this house day and night, upon the place whereof you have said that you would put your name there, to hearken to the prayer which your servant prays toward this place. Now, God has revealed to us where he's going to build his next temple at the original site of Jerusalem. And he has promised in the book of Haggai and in Zechariah that this will be accomplished. So we can remind him of that prayer and ask him to do just that, even as Solomon is reminding God here as this temple was finished. Verse 21, Hearken therefore to the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel, which uh, they shall make toward this place, hear you from your dwelling place, even from heaven, and when you hear, forgive. Now, did I not read to you last week in uh, Zechariah and in Isaiah 44, how God says he will wipe out our sins as a cloud, in Zechariah 3, how he'll forgive in one day. So we can ask him to fulfill those promises he's made. Now, we have to be doing our part. We can't just ask God to do his part without us doing ours. And we'll see that here as well. If a man sin against his neighbor, and an oath be laid upon him to make him swear, and the oath come before your altar in this house, then hear you from heaven, and do, and judge your servants by requiting the wicked, by recompensing his way upon his own head, and by justifying the righteous, by giving him according to his righteousness. So he says, make your judgments be known in this house, Father. Now, we can say the same thing about the spiritual church of God, that God make his judgments known in the church. And in fact, it just came to mind, there is a place in the Old Testament where it says if they went to the priests and asked advice, then God bound them to follow that answer. He worked through and authorized the priesthood and said, if they tell you to do this or to do that, whatever their judgment is, you are bound by God to follow that judgment. I, don't, I wish I could remember where that is. It just came to mind. It's in there, though. And that's essentially what he's asking here. Verse 24, And if your people Israel be put to the worse before the enemy... Because they have sinned against you, and shall return and confess your name, and pray and make supplication before you in this house. He says, we're prone to sin. <laughs> so, if we do, or if your people do, let them come and confess your name, acknowledge you, and supplicate you. Then hear you from the heavens, and forgive the sin of your people Israel, and, they, and bring them again unto the land which you gave to them and to their fathers. So this is a big one to captivity. Bring them back. Then hear you from heaven, and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel, when you have taught them the good way wherein they should walk, and send rain upon your land which you have given to your people for an inheritance. He's praying an incredible prayer here. Now, Solomon, later on, got off track in his life in some respects, but this prayer is right on. He continues in verse 28, If there be dearth in the land, if there be pestilence, if there be blasting or mildew, locust or caterpillars, now, he tells us there in Haggai that he sent those things upon the church. In other words, he spewed us out, as Revelation 3 puts it, but he sent a famine of the word, as Amos puts it. If their enemies besiege them in the cities of their land, and that's about to happen in this nation, whatsoever sore or whatsoever sickness there be, then what prayer or what supplication soever shall be made of any man or of all your people Israel, when everyone shall know his own sore and his own grief and shall spread forth his hands in this house? 
simply says, God, be ready and be willing to acknowledge your people when they've sinned, they've gone into captivity, they've had trouble, they've been cursed, and they come back to you. Now, isn't that what he has told us? If we are spewed out of his mouth, if we are cursed, that if we will return to him and get over our Laodicean lackadaisical attitudes, turn to him with our whole heart to do his will, not our will, that he will turn again to us and shine his face upon us and bless us. Same thing Solomon's asking way back here 2,500 years ago. Then hear you from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render unto every man according to all his ways. Ezekiel says that in Ezekiel 33. Each man will answer for his own life. Whose heart you know. So you know the hearts of everyone. Answer everyone according to what you know about his heart. For you only know the hearts of the children of men. We cannot read other people's hearts. In fact, we can't even read our own heart properly. <laughs> we have deceitful, desperately wicked hearts, and we self-deceive so very often. In fact, sometimes it's harder for us to know our own heart maybe than it is somebody else's because we love to deceive ourselves. Verse 24, And if your people Israel be put to the worst before the enemy because they've sinned against you and shall return and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this house and hear from the heavens and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them, I guess I already read that. Verse 26, When the heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they've sinned against you, Yet if they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you did or do afflict them, then hear you from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel when you have taught them the good way. Now, Herbert Armstrong was taught the good way beginning in 1926 and 27. He restored a great deal of truth to what became the church and even to the world to some degree. Uh, and they learned of the good way. And then he died, and the good way was taken back into worldly evangelism and forgotten, pretty much. And then he has given us, in 1996 and 97. Uh, a much greater understanding of what he wants the end-time church to do, to rebuild the temple in a different way. So 70 years later, after uh, we have been in the captivity of Babylon these 70 years, I find it interesting that there in Micah 4, one of the scriptures that we responded to, when he says, leave the city, go dwell in the wilderness, go even to Babylon... I had considered that, that we would leave like Chicago and New York and L.A. and Dallas and wherever we happen to be in those cities and just get out of the midst of Babylon. But in thinking it through, the original Babylon was in this area. The original cradle of civilization was in southern Utah, well, between the Grand Canyon and the Great Salt Lake. Is where the original promised land was. And it was within this area that they set up the original Babylon with Nimrod et al. So when he said, leave the cities of the expanded promised land, which is nationwide, go back to the original promised land, go even to Babylon, then we have come back to not only the promised land that God gave us, but we've also come back to the original site of Babylon. That was later reestablished over in the Middle East, uh, and that is the Babylon that most people have been aware of. But the original was right here. So we not only left the cities and came to the wilderness, we came even to the original Babylon, as well as the original promised land. Um, now, where was I here? Thirty? Okay. Then hear you from heaven your dwelling place, and forgive, and render unto every man according to all his ways, 
whose heart you know, for you, you only know the hearts of the children of men. That I just read. Uh, he's the one that knows. Verse 31, that they may fear you to walk in your ways so long as they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Now, God has revealed to us where the original promised land was and brought us to it, and we need to fear God, not fear the new world order. Isaiah 7 and 8 tells us very clearly we're not to fear them, we're to fear him in this land which he gave our fathers. So here we are, having returned, just as a small preparation for the 10% gathering that is soon to come. And they may be fairly soon. We might see a little bit more of that later. Verse 32, Moreover concerning the stranger, which is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your great namesake, and your mighty hand, and your stretched out arm, if they come and pray in this house, then hear you from the heavens, even from your dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calls to you for, that all the people of the earth may know your name, and fear you as does the pe your people Israel, and may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. Now, God opened up salvation to the Gentiles through the early New Testament apostles. But Solomon had a world view of all the peoples of the nations and had ships going all over the earth. And he said, even if strangers come, that they are to know who the true God is. Now, did we not read last week that when God shows his hidden, uh, buried treasures, then he will make the world know from the east to the west, around the world, the whole earth, that he is the God of heaven and earth. And that if a stranger come, and if you go on into, uh, toward the end of Isaiah 45, it talks about different uh, tribes of Gentiles who will come. And they will say, let us work for you and serve the eternal God. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially the message there at the end of Isaiah 45. So we are in the same circumstance that Solomon was talking about here. Verse 34, If your people go out to war against their enemies by the way that you should send them, and they pray to, to you toward this city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, then hear you from the heavens their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. Now, he is going to use the end-time church with the two witnesses and the remnant who will gather in this area, and he will build a physical temple and then build physical Jerusalem. Seventy weeks prophecy of that in Daniel. And then, when they pray and ask for protection and guidance, when that temple is defiled, they will speak to the world for 1260 days, and God will hear their supplication, and maintain their cause and protect them so that they can do that. If they sin against you, for there is no man which sins not, so he says it's a foregone conclusion that after his day, everybody would sin. And Solomon himself, even after praying this, pray, uh, this prayer, did sin. So every man except Christ has sinned. And you be angry with them, and deliver them over before their enemies, and they carry them away captives to a land far off or near. Yet if they bethink themselves in the land where they are carried captive, and turn and pray to you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have done amiss, and have dealt wickedly, if they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul, in the land of their captivity, where they have carried them captives, and pray toward their land, which you gave unto their fathers, and toward the city which you have chosen, and toward the house which I have built for your name. People are soon, as things get pretty tough in this nation and in the world, are going to begin to pray. I mean, ex-members are still members, more or less, of what was the worldwide church of God, the faithful remnant. And he's going to hear them, as Solomon asks here in verse 39. Then hear you from the heavens, even from your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, 
and maintain their cause, and forgive your people which have sinned against you. Now, Isaiah had not been written when Solomon prayed this prayer. Uh, but David, I mean, Isaiah uh, did tell us there that God would remove our sins, and Zechariah said, in one day. So what Solomon is praying is a prayer that is uh, valid this very day and in the very near future. <clears throat> so hear their prayer, verse 40. Now therefore arise, O eternal God, into your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O eternal God, be clothed with salvation. Didn't we read last week that we are in Isaiah 52, that we are to put on our white garments of righteousness and salvation? It's time to do that again. And let your saints rejoice in goodness. Now we are meeting today and over the next eight days to commemorate the dedication of the temple when it had been rebuilt and to rejoice in the goodness of God. Knowing that he is going to rebuild the temple and very shortly we will be celebrating the rededication of the temple of God both as a spiritual organism, as 10% almost uh, of the church show up with the two leaders that God is going to provide, and the spiritual temple comes together, and then the physical will as well. So we will have two fulfillings of this here in the next short while. O eternal God, turn not away the face of your anointed. Remember the mercies of David, your servant. So that's the end of his prayer then, uh, calling on David's name, because David had been faithful to God overall. Now, here, this is interesting. Now, when Solomon, remember at the beginning of this prayer, he had asked God to verify his word, to verify his prayer. Now notice. Now, when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the eternal filled the house. Reminds you of Acts 2, doesn't it? When God began the early New Testament church with cloven tongues of fire. The priest didn't have to light a fire and burn the offerings up here. God sent a fire. And the priest could not enter into the house of the eternal because the glory of the eternal had filled the eternal's house. It was too bright. They couldn't handle it. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Eternal uh, upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement, knelt down, put their face on the pavement, endures forever. Remember that psalm that says that in every verse? His mercy endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Eternal. And King Solomon offered 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. That's a lot of animals. That's a huge offering, isn't it? How long would it take you to butcher 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep? Every priest was very, very busy. <laughs> so the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. And the priests waited on their offices, the Levites also, with instruments of music of the eternal. So offered all these animals, and then they sang and played music to God. And that's what the Jews did to do this evening, is sing music, and we've already been singing psalms to God today. Which David the king had made to praise the eternal, because his mercy endures forever. <clears throat> when David praised by their ministry, and the priests sounded trumpets before them, and all Israel stood. And then in addition to that, Solomon hallowed the middle of the court that was before the house of the Eternal, for there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings, uh, because the brazen altar which Solomon had made was not able to receive the burnt offerings and the meat offerings and the fat. That was just too many animals to even get on the altar by far. Also at the same time, Solomon kept the feast seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great, great congregation from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of Egypt. So they kept the feast at this same time when they dedicated Solomon's temple. 
And in the eighth day, they made a solemn assembly. So this was the Feast of Tabernacles, the eight days. For they kept the dedication of the altar seven days, and the feast seven days. And the eighth day is tacked on, as we know. And on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away. The feast was over, into their tents, glad and merry in heart for the goodness that the Eternal had showed to David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. That would have been a very satisfying and very emotional thing, to see this temple being built and maybe helping build it, and then to see that many animals offered there, and then God to send an incredible fire to burn up 142,000 animals all at once, and then to keep the feast with excitement and joy. Well, there is a dedication of the temple for you to think about. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Eternal and the king's house, and all that came into Solomon's heart to make him the house of the Eternal. And in his own house, he prospered, or he previously affected. And then the Eternal appeared to Solomon by night. So now God is going to give Solomon a message. Said to him, I've heard your prayer. He asked him to hear it, didn't he? And I have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people... Now, have we had pestilence and famine of the word sent on us as Church of God worldwide? Yes, we have. And we're splintered and split and starving to death and dying spiritually around the world. So he says, if I do this to you, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. This is a song that we used to sing in the, in the chorale uh, that was written based on this verse. Beautiful hymn, a beautiful song. Now my eyes shall be open, and my ears attend to the prayer that is made in this place. So God says if you've sinned, if you've been in captivity, spiritually or physically, and you come and turn with all your heart and call out to his name, that he will hear the prayer. Now we're going to pray a prayer tonight and ask God to hear it. And hopefully we're going to be humbling ourselves and seeking his face and turning from our wicked ways. For now I have, have I chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually forever. Now what happened to that temple? Is he still dwelling there? Is he perpetually there forever? No. What happened? Let's read on. Verse 17. And as for you, if you will walk before me, as David your father walked, and do according to all that I have commanded you, and shall observe my statutes and my judgments, then while I establish the throne of your kingdom, according as I have covenanted with David your father, saying, There shall not fail you a man to be ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, did he? The scripture tell us that he married a lot of Gentile wives and they turned his heart away from God. Be careful who you marry. You might have your heart turned away from God. That's what Solomon did. Then will I pluck them up by the roots out of my land, which I have given them. I'll, I'll grab them, I'll tear them out of there. And this house, which I have sanctified for my name, will I cast out of my sight. They can't find it today. It's gone. Cast out of his sight. And will make it to be a proverb and a byword among all nations. You know what they're saying about this house that Solomon built today, the archaeologists in the Middle East? They're saying it was never there. It never existed. They can't find any remnants of it. 
Well, there's a reason for that, and that is that is that he wasn't where he built it. He built it here in southern or in southern Utah is where he built it. That's where it will be found. But in the meantime, they can't find it over there, so they're saying that Solomon's house was a fable. That's what the archaeological magazines say, the leading ones. But it never happened, because the Bible says it did, and they can't find it. So it's a byword among all nations, just as God said. And this house, which is high, shall be an astonishment to everyone that passes by it, so that he shall say, Why has the Eternal done this to this land and to this house? And it shall be answered, because they forsook the Eternal God of their fathers, which brought them forth out of the land of Mitzrayim, and laid hold on other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore has he brought all this evil upon them. Not only was that house destroyed, but so was Jerusalem. And we find in Jeremiah and Isaiah and other places that Jerusalem would be desolate for many generations and no man would dwell there. And that's true of the original Jerusalem here in southern Utah. It has never been true of the Jerusalem that the Arabs built in the Middle East. It's been torn down and rebuilt, but it's never been uninhabited like he said what happened to the true Jerusalem. So did God build a temple through Herbert Armstrong, a spiritual temple, and even a house for God, which he considered to be the temple of God, a physical temple. Well, he's gone, the church is gone, and the temple is pretty much gone and destroyed as well. It is not used for God's purposes whatsoever today. So God made some pretty awesome promises here to Solomon. But it's always contingent upon our obedience and our turning to God with our whole heart. And the only way this church problem that we have today is going to be resolved is that 10% almost of God's people turn to him with their whole heart and he stirs them to come and build a temple with greater glory than that which Herbert Armstrong did. And there'll be no comparison between the two. This is going to happen. Let's go to Ezra now. Uh, well, what happened to my time? Yeah, I had a break in there. That's That was it. We'll blame it on that. <clears throat> now, after they had been in captivity 70 years in Babylon, uh, I think Daniel reminded King Cyrus of the promise uh, that God had made through Jeremiah that after 70 years they would be re allowed to return to the land and the temple for God would be built. So here at the beginning of Ezra, uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, who had replaced Nebuchadnezzar and Belteshazzar, uh, said that a proclamation would be made that, there, that the God of heaven, verse 2, uh, has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And then he asked for volunteers from among the Jews to go do just that. Uh, he tells us in Isaiah 44 and 45, he's going to raise up a man who does not know him, just as Cyrus didn't, uh, and give him the hidden treasures of God. And he would say that the temple had to be built and the Jerusalem had to be built, an end-time prophecy, and that everyone from the east to the west would know that God is God. Now, that has not happened yet in the history of the world, where the whole population of the earth has come to know that God is God. Well, you might say Adam and Eve and no one is a family member, but, but I mean, when the earth is populated, that has never happened. That prophecy has not been fulfilled as yet, but it will be, because the temple is going to be rebuilt, and so is Jerusalem, and its original place, as Zechariah, I think, 12 or 13 tells us. <clears throat> now, let's go on here and pick up the story a little bit. Uh, the Jews responded and went, 42,000 of them, chapter 2, verse 64, to build the temple. And they gave, a, after their ability, offerings, verse 69, to do that. Uh, so then Joshua and Zerubbabel and these people stood up and built the altar of God of, the, of the God of Israel, chapter 3, verse 2, and they kept the Feast of Tabernacles. In verse 6, 
From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings to the Eternal, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they were there to do it, but the temple, I mean the foundation hadn't been laid. So in the second year, on the second month, uh, Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, came out, that came out of activity, captivity, twenty years old and upward, set forward the work of the house of the eternal. Now, uh, the foundation was laid, verse 11, and many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men, old, old guys, that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice and many shouted for joy. So they had seen the temple. They had gone into captivity 70 years and now they saw another one being laid. Now some adversaries arrived, chapter 4, and they didn't want this to happen so they caused opposition. And then the work ceased. The foundation was laid and there the work ceased. Now, if you read in the commentaries, uh, let's go down to verse chapter 4, verse 24. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased into the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So Cyrus wasn't there anymore. Darius was in his second year. Uh, the commentators are a little confused on how long uh, this ceased. Some say 14 years. Some say 17 years based on their studies of chronology of the kings. Now, I find it interesting that Herbert Armstrong's temple was destroyed, or God's temple under Herbert Armstrong, the former temple of Haggai and Zechariah, and that someone else started another congregation, another church, in 1992. It was called the Church of the Great God, now, if you look at chapter 5, verse 8. Be it known to the king that we went into the province of Judea to the house of the great God. House of God, church of God. There's the name that was put on it. The church of the great God. That happened in January of 1992 uh, when that particular one was founded. <clears throat> now, I became a part of that uh, that spring or a little later, somewhere right along there in 92. And I was hired in the fall of 96 or 95 to go to the headquarters of that church and to uh, help with the administration and the ministry and so on. Well, I showed up there, uh, as my goal was, on January 1st of 1996. And shortly thereafter, during that first month, God gave me understanding of Haggai and Zechariah and how his house had to be built. And in April of that year, on Passover Day, he showed me the fake Jerusalem and the true Jerusalem, or not the true Jerusalem, but the true promised land in Zion in southern Utah. It wasn't until 2006 and seven, as I recounted at the beginning of this sermon, uh, that we found out where the true Jerusalem was, as opposed to the fake one that Herbert Armstrong tried to go through and it didn't work. It was a fake Jerusalem. Anyway, let's understand the sequence. <clears throat> 96, 90, 96, that message began to come, and I began to preach it. And the first sermon thereafter that I gave on the first Sabbath of February 1996 went through the book of Haggai and showed that this had to be done and that God would have a 10% remnant of his church come together to do it. Now, there had been about four years from the time that the Church of the Great God had been founded until that message came. Well, I preached that message in Church of the Great God, including most of the Minor Prophet series, and that was shut off in the year 2000. I preached it there for four years, and that part of the work ceased. From the time that I was disfellowship from Church of the Great God in July of, 19, or of 2000, in that church, 
that message ceased. All my sermons were taken off their website. Every article I'd written, I think, in the uh, uh, Forerunner uh, was taken out, I think. And uh, I, I basically was blotted out. The message that I had given there stopped. It just stopped. So a foundation was laid in 92 of the House of the Great God. And then how the latter temple would come about and the fact that it needed to began to be preached in 1996. And that message stopped in 2000, four years later. Now, the work ceased on the temple of God here in Ezra's time for either 14 or 17 years, depending on which scholar you read. Now, do a little math and figure that that message stopped, that work that I was trying to do there, the message God had given about the latter temple, stopped in 2000. What year do we see on the horizon here on the 24th of December? 2017. Is this going to be precise? Is 27 the year, 2017 the year that the work commences again? Will the gathering occur sometime during 2017, maybe after Passover? It seems to be the indication on Isaiah 53 and 54, if I'm looking at it right. Did it cease for 17 years and then it will start again? I find that a very interesting thing that we're right at the cusp of that and the world is about to come apart and this nation is about to go into civil war and God says that just ahead of the northern army there in Jeremiah 50 and 51 that his people will come saying, how do I get to Zion? <laughs> i got to get to Zion. Is that going to be this year? I think there's a very, very good possibility of that. So it makes me think that the scholars who say it was in... 17 years of ceasing may have been correct instead of the ones that say 14 years. We'll see. We'll see. Anyway, <coughs> Haggai and Zechariah prophesied about all this, and that's the message that was given to me to understand that, and said that they were to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem in chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, and then it was questioned, but they went ahead and built the house of the great God, verse 8, and then people said, well, who are you to do this? And then they said in verse 11, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and build a house that was built these many years ago. So Cyrus or Darius did not build it. God's people did. And it will be God's people who build this end time one. Uh, and then they also brought, verse 14, vessels of gold and silver for the house of God. Those vessels of gold and silver will appear again. They're hidden. They're buried right now. But God says in Haggai, the gold and the silver is mine. Why does he say that? Just right there in the middle of that context, because that's what he's talking about. Here at the end time, under the two witnesses and the remnant church. So let's go on down. <coughs> Verse 15 of chapter 6, This house was finished on the third day of the month, Adar, in March, the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king, four years in the building. The children of Israel, the priests, and the Levites, and the rest of the children kept the dedication of this house of God with joy and offered as the dedication of this house a hundred bullocks, two hundred lambs, four hundred lambs for a sin offering for all Israel, twelve he-goats. It wasn't quite what Solomon did, but they didn't have as many animals as Solomon did either. But it's still a pretty goodly show. And they set priests in their divisions and the Levites in their courses for the service of God, which is at Jerusalem, for it is written in the book of Moses. And they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month, and so on. Uh, verse 21, And the children of Israel, which were come again out of captivity of Babylon, and all such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land. Didn't he tell us in Isaiah 52, about verse 11, 12, somewhere along there, that... Those who bear the vessels of the eternal must be clean. To seek the eternal of God, and they did eat there, and kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the eternal had made them joyful, and turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, 
to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So here we have another dedication. Well, I'm running out of time, but we already know Acts 2, uh, when God began the early New Testament church. But they all gathered in one accord in one place, and he sent his spirit and fire and cloven tongues of fire, and with great power showed where his church was. We're going to see the same thing here in the end time. That fire came in Solomon's day and licked up all those sacrifices and the glory of God filled it. The same thing happened in Acts 2. Now what is going to happen here? God says he is going to build Jerusalem as villages without walls and that a wall of fire will be around it to protect it and defend it. And that he will be there with his, the glory of God will be upon it, and he will bless it, and he will protect it in Zion, and he will send two out to tell the world the good news of the coming kingdom of God and how they can be part of it if they will just repent of their evil, wicked ways and their covenant with Satan to have a thousand years of millennial war on the earth under Satan. So the same thing is coming up to happen again. Now, I think God moved us to keep the Feast of Dedication, which is uh, a remembrance of the time when the temple was cleansed. We are going to see the temple, the spiritual temple of God, cleansed again very shortly, and God is going to turn his face and bless us if we do our part and serve him with all our heart. And then he will have us build a physical temple, uh, which will be defiled, and then we'll flee to Zion when that occurs, and the message will start going to the world. So that's what's lined out, and that's what the Feast of Dedication of the Temple of God is about. It's not just ancient history, but it's for us today, and it's about to commence. Um, it could happen in 2017, and it would fit the pattern of, of Ezra. I don't know that that'll be the case, but it's certainly an interesting pattern to consider. And it's interesting that God showed us Jerusalem at the same exact weeks, the same exact time that 70 years earlier, Herbert Armstrong had made a, an attempt to go to the false Jerusalem, and it didn't work. This time it'll be the true Jerusalem, and it will work. <laughs>